I'm McKinney Smith. In 2009, while going through a divorce, I decided to jump straight into entrepreneurship. In 2012, I lost my sister and asked myself, what legacy do I want to leave behind? Since then, I've become a serial entrepreneur, helping other women publish their books, produce their podcasts, and reach their big goals to walk in their greatness. I realized the importance of sharing our stories of resilience and how it can be another's guide to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. We are blessed to be a blessing. So get ready to be blessed with an inspiring testimony. Hey, Legacy Leavers, thank you for joining us on the Awaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show in the world where we have conversations with extraordinary women that are letting us step into their shoes. I help women to own their voice, to create impact, prosperity, and legacy. I get inspired when I see another woman succeeding, but what interests me more is her backstory and her mindset on how she got there. So since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. Today, we have Nicole O'Salmon. She's a proud mother of emerging blended family of five. She's a minister, strategist, author, and the purpose coach. She works with women to gain in-depth insight into who they are so they can live their lives with clarity, consistency, and confidence. Before stepping into full-time purpose and launching her own coaching firm, she worked in the not-for-profit sector for over 20 years specifically with organizations serving communities experiencing marginalization. She's also the founder of Preach Sis, a global movement and event for female Christian communicators. So please welcome to the show, Nicole Salmon. Hey. Hey. (laughs) Thank you so much for agreeing to come on and share your story with us. Thank you for creating spaces like this. It feels good to be here. Oh. Yeah, it's honestly, I mean, I don't even know what to say sometimes because it's like I didn't intentionally <laughs> start out this way. And I'm I'm grateful for the feedback and the impact that it's making. So I'll just say thank you. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, before we get into the meat of your story, I love to find out a little bit about our guest beforehand. So before we get into the meat of your story, um, just as an icebreaker question, I'd love to, you know, find out a little bit more about your beginnings, because I feel like as kids, we have these vivid imaginations of what we want to be and who we want to be, and we're able to fantasize and, um, you know, create these worlds for ourselves. And then society, you know, starts to try to limit us and even our caregivers or family or, or loved ones start to limit us with their own limiting beliefs. So I would love to know, like, what did Nicole want to be when she was a little girl? Uh, wow. So first of all, like, as I was listening to your question, my I started to tear up. And I'm not like a crier. I'm not a crier. I started to tear up specifically when you you said, you know, you kind of start off this particular way. And then right, mm-hmm. the limiting beliefs, the the silencing. And that's something like I identify with hugely. So as a kid, I think my first ambition that I can remember is I, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, which technically isn't far, far off from what I'm doing now. It's just a different way of 
educating and informing people, right? So mm-hmm. I wanted to be a teacher, thought I'd be in a classroom. My best friend and I were both going to go to the same school together and share dorm rooms and all of this stuff um, until I started looking at the requirements to get into the program and some of the courses. And I was like, yeah, absolutely not. This this doesn't feel like what I want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like you kind of have this image in your head and then I'm like, mm it doesn't, it doesn't align. And so in my last year of high school, the school that I attended had a, uh, like a program in the classroom for uh, students with developmental disabilities. And I started volunteering there. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't even remember how I got into that, but I started volunteering and I loved it. I loved working with them and so after, you know, a semester or two of doing that, I ended up applying to the developmental services worker program at Humber College and, and with a specialized focus around behavioral modification. And then as they say, the, the rest is kind of history. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. Okay. So fast forward, how, mm-hmm. like, okay, so share with us the journey and, um, you know, how you got into being a purpose coach. Yeah. So I think at the, at the core, you know, I believe that sometimes when we look back, I always say purpose leaves us breadcrumbs, right? So mm-hmm. as I look back, nothing was wasted. There was, even though I started out in developmental services, working with people in special needs, like it's exactly what I'm doing today, right? So I did that for a while, graduated, did that for a while. Like I said, I was most intrigued in working with those who had behavioral challenges that were keeping them from functioning in society. So for example, I had this young man, um, he had uh, spina bifida, he was nonverbal, and his family really wanted him to be able to eat dinner with them, mm-hmm. but he was always thrashing and just carrying on, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, I worked with him, you know, to really shift his behavior so that he could join his family. And really at the core of everything I've been doing since has been how do you shift your behavior, your mindset, your mm-hmm. lifestyle so that you can be more successful, right? And so that kind of led to um, me getting into career and becoming a career counselor. So I shifted from behavior to career, where my focus started to uh, be around uh, personality and temperament theory, um, and helping people under again, understanding who they are, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was working in the non for profit sector for almost two decades uh, in Jane Finch here in Toronto, um, which is, you know, known as a, a community, a marginalized community um, with youth who are at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I did frontline for years, but then I moved into a management position and I found after a while, um, I wasn't so much interested in that employment piece and working with the youth. I started becoming keenly, aware of staff development. Mm-hmm. I had a very young team. And at that time, there was no leadership um, development for employees. And so I started meeting with my staff biweekly to do supervision. And I was like, listen, you're young, you're not, you're probably not going to retire here. What is what do you want? You mm-hmm. know, and let me help you get the most out of your time here. And what I didn't realize was happening is I was practicing purpose. Like I was I was testing Mm. out coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Without even knowing that's what was happening. And yeah, that was happening in the background. And 
more and my more my heart was just feeling like it was time to go go and do what I didn't know <laughs> um but I just knew that the grace I had for the last like almost 20 years doing that work um was leaving me and it was time to you know just go out into the world and and just just try just try and see all the ideas all the stuff that was in me it was like okay let's throw it at the wall and see what sticks wow. and um within the first year of doing that i when i started looking back at all the things i was doing and developing and talking about i realized there was a thread i was always talking about purpose so mm-hmm. even if i wasn't using the word i was looking at my old tweets and facebook posts at the core of everything i was most passionately giving voice to it was about you know just deeply understanding who you are and embracing that and just kind of approaching life from that place and so i started calling myself the purpose coach i love it you know what you said in the very beginning there purpose leaves us breadcrumbs I wanted to mm-hmm. pause there and take a moment of silence. <laughs> <laughs> For the women who are listening, I want you to write that down. Purpose leaves us breadcrumbs. That'll definitely be your quote for the episode. <laughs> okay. Speaking of purpose, um, I know that you lost your mother at 18 and you became a single mother at 19. You know, oftentimes when we go through things in those early age, they shape who we um, become. You know, Mm -hmm. do you feel like those experiences shaped who Nicole is today? Uh, 100%. Um, So my mom was first diagnosed with cancer. I think I was probably around 15 or 16. It was so it was just the two of us. And I, by the time I started my first year of college, um, she had, her, her illness had gotten worse. I had to unroll and became her full-time caregiver, right? So here I was as a little girl who should have been taken care of, taking care of someone else, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was, that was really hard. I put, I put a lot on hold. Um, and then of course, when she passed, I was then as then living on my own. So I was really living on my own since about 17. Cause I think that's when she went into palliative care, mm-hmm. um, you know, paying bills and, you know, just, just doing all adulting, just doing all mm-hmm. of the adult stuff, you know, and having to be her advocate and my own advocate. Um, and so that, um, I, I I kind of grieve, like kind of looking back now m- my childhood a, a bit, but it definitely, I remember one day like fast forwarding, I was it, at my apartment and it was a Saturday and I like threw open the windows and the doors and I was cleaning and washing the walls and wiping down the light switches. And I kind of smiled to myself because I'm just like, <laughs> you, you gave me all of that. You know what I mean? I'm like, you. You left, but you left me, you left me well. You know what I mean? Like I had what I needed, so to speak, to survive, not only domestically, but in other ways as well. I realized that she had imparted so much in in the short time that I had her. And so, you know, when I had my son, I I, I raised him kind of in the same way. I, I think I raised him thinking, if God forbid that, you know, I get called home prematurely what is it that 
I want to leave behind. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I know you address your audience as legacy leavers. I try to live my place from from a legacy perspective. Like, what Mm -hmm. if I'm gone? Like, what what will be left behind? What will I have impacted and imparted? Mm -hmm. I think being a church girl and like being in church at the time and then, you know, subsequently the next year getting pregnant and now being a mother myself, that was really hard. You're a young black woman, you're a young black woman in church. The statistics and the the perspective didn't look good. No one was excited, which I didn't expect them to be, but it was a very shaming experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it muzzled me. As a kid, I think I came out talking. I didn't have words, but I was that baby that cried a lot. I think it's because I always had something to say. (laughs) And so speaking is my gift. My voice is my gift. But that experience and that shame that I felt, it silenced me. It silenced my voice. It silenced my talents. I would be in spaces where I had so much to contribute, but I would just hear like just be quiet, you know, like you're just going to embarrass yourself again. And it's only going to be a matter of time before you do. And so that shame dialogue was like, mm-hmm. it was raining. And so I felt like all the optimism around purpose and the, and the, all the, all the things I could possibly grow up to be, I felt like my purpose was canceled. I felt oh, wow. like my mistake. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the, the mistake and the, you know, and getting pregnant out of wedlock and all of that. I felt like it canceled my purpose. And so for years, I I sat silent. Wow. I mean, first of all, I'm sorry for um, your loss and, you know, you having Thank to you. experience that at such a young age. I know, you know, everyone processes grief differently and our levels of grief, I find, are um, usually dependent on how close we are um, with that, that person. Just thinking about, I guess, the effects of how losing my loved ones affected me, I'd be interested to know, like, how do you feel losing your mom shaped who Nicole is today? You're right. We all process grief differently. I'm only now processing McKinney. Like I'm, I have a therapist. I know it seems to be the popular thing to say now, but (laughs) I have a therapist and I'm only now deeply unpacking. I did not cry during that time. I just packaged everything up and I just soldiered soldiered on. Mm. And I think in terms of how it shaped me is I it it toughened me in a way that didn't serve me, I think mm. I would say. Mm. I I thought I had like it was my I wore toughness as a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. I, I I saw it as you've got to be this to be strong. You got to be this to be taken serious. Don't let nobody mess with you. Don't let anybody right. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I had to self protect. I held on to relate relationships loosely, mm-hmm. um, because I was like, hey, it's whatever. Like people come and go, right? So mm-hmm. there was always an expectancy of people leaving my life that I didn't realize. You know, when you say how it shaped me. And mm-hmm. so I remember when I was in seminary, I remember I was having a difficult day. I went to the bathroom because um, I could feel myself crying, wanting to cry. But I'm like, I'm strong. I'm a soldier. I don't cry. Right. But mm-hmm. yeah, I don't cry. <laughs> so I left because I didn't want I didn't want my emotions to surface. Right. And the the chef of the school, she was in the bathroom at the same time. She was a much older lady. She had been a single mom as well. 
and you know deep calls on to deep right like she didn't mm-hmm. know my story but but pain recognizes pain and deep calls on to deep and she just saw me and she could just read me you know and she put her arms around me McKitty and she held me like with that that mother's you know and like that mother mm-hmm. hug mm-hmm. she held me and she said to me she said you don't have to be strong it's okay to be soft yes and i wept and i wept and i wept and i realized that after years of teaching myself and telling myself that i had to be tough i now had to learn how to be soft mm-hmm. and gentle and feel and experience relationships and let people in and trust and and all of those things and so i have i i was probably in my early 20s when that moment happened and i am still on a journey of grief healing unlearning a lot of what i i thought i had to hold on to to survive as a young single mom at that time well i have goosebumps this, you know we as i'm going to say uh, i'm going to say specifically within the black community we experience a lot of trauma you know, early on childhood wounds, childhood traumas, and our trauma responses, um, you know, the way that we react in order to survive as we get older, no longer serves us and affects our ability to thrive. So, mm-hmm. you know, mom passed away and you felt like, you know, you needed to to be strong and to um, do those things because you you needed to do that in order to to survive in that moment. But like you said, going through therapy now and learning to heal and and unlearn things, it's realizing what you did then to survive, you don't need to do now. Um, right you know, for your for your relationships now, like, ooh, I have goosebumps. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, you know, also what you spoke to about being a young mom. I, for one, you know, I had my first child at 17, so I, I can totally relate to your story of, you know, how society treated you, but I can only imagine having that extra layer. Like I wasn't in the church at the time. Um, Mm -hmm. so I already know (laughs) the judgment that comes Mm -hmm. um, with those environments. And I can only imagine the added layer of trauma that that put on you on top of, you know, being a young girl who's grieving the loss of her mother, who you were, you know, helping also to take care of when she got ill. But now you're a young single mom of a small child. Again, like the layers of struggle that you had to deal with Uh at such a young age. I'm a true believer in therapy. I think everyone needs therapy. So I would love if you could share with the listeners, like how therapy has actually helped you on your healing journey and helped you to uh, be the best version of Nicole? Uh, that's a really good question. You've you've used the word trauma a few times. And I didn't know that what happened to me was traumatizing. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't, I never, again, I never understood. I, I mean, I have a clinical background. I'm a coach, you know, I'm a pastoral counselor. I understand trauma. But I never looked at everything that happened to me and said, Nicole experienced trauma. Mm-hmm. Ther- therapy helped me to do that. Like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't recognize how difficult my formative years were. And so now as a, as a mother, like, you know, my son that I, that I had at that time, he's going to be 23 this year. I, yeah. I have 
you know, four, uh, four other kids. So we have a blended family of four. Our youngest is 11. And what therapy is teaching me is that I am not my mother and those children are not me. Mm-hmm. Because what I didn't realize was happening is I was parenting. I was parenting in an unhealthy way um, because I was trying to protect them from the trauma I experienced without knowing it. So, for example, when I'm not well, I started to develop this habit of like, I would be homesick and I would be like sick. And then half an hour before my husband came home or the kids came home, I'd pop up, shower, get dressed and, and, and look busy. Right. Mm -hmm. Because I didn't want them. I, I felt embarrassed to be seen unwell. And I realized that when I had to care for my mom, again, coming from Jamaican parentage, my mom's going through chemo. She's lost her hair. She's lost her ability to walk. But yet when people came over, it was my job as a child to get her wig out mm-hmm. <laughs> and steady it on her head, mm-hmm. right? And just prop her up and make sure she looked well, mm-hmm. even though everybody knows that this woman is sick, right? right. And in I real, I learned in therapy that indirectly that experience taught me that illness is something to be ashamed of. of, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then as an adult, like, you know, I was making myself sometimes more sick because I was trying to show up looking like I was well when I was struggling. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my, one day my therapist said to me that you're not your mom, your children are not you. They have, you only, you only had yourself. Your yeah. children have you, your husband, you have a village, you have a community, go lay down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was worried the trauma that I experienced having to be a caretaker for a sick parent, I was worried. I didn't, I'm like, I don't want to traumatize them. I don't want them to have to help. I don't want them to have to do anything. Um, and so it really just, it really affected how I parented. It affected my self-care because mm-hmm. trauma had taught me that that was something you had to hide, be, uh, feel ashamed of and power through. Mm-hmm. There's so much that you said that I want to unpack because I feel like, you know, your story is an example of so many things where one, when we hear the word trauma, we are conditioned to believe that it has to be something catastrophic. Like, you know, sexual abuse or physical abuse or, you know, something like that. You know, I I mentioned earlier as a culture, especially in the Black community, but I also know in many other cultures where there are things that we normalize where because we've normalized it in our community, we don't view it as trauma. You know, your your therapist had to point out to you that what you experienced was trauma Um, and not all trauma is a capital T, you know, and, and your experience with your mom you know, helping her to look well when, you know, everyone knew she was not well. I think, especially again, in the Black community, we've been conditioned to make things look good instead of being able to process your feelings and to show up as our true authentic selves for the perception of others. um, We've been conditioned 
to make things look a certain way. And that has a huge effect on how we process through life, you know, how we view ourselves. You talked about the therapist bringing you to that place of awareness to one, recognize that what you went through um, is trauma, but two, you know, to help you to reframe that and, you know, that you're, you are not your mom and, and your kids are are not you. And that in turn helping you to parent differently uh, so I guess my next question would be like, how has motherhood changed you? Wow. Um, I'm not sure I know how to answer that because I think one of the other things that came up for me in therapy is that I've been in caretaker mode for a really long time. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I remember one day uh, she was saying, you know, like, what would it look like for you to not take care of everyone? And I couldn't answer it then. And I still struggle with answering that. Now I can't picture a world where I'm not taking care because Mm -hmm. I started doing, doing so really young. So becoming a mother, like, so one thing I can say about how motherhood um, has shaped me or changed me is as a young single mom, it definitely focused me. Mm. Um, So after my mom passed away, like my life got hectic. Like I dealt with grief by keeping busy. I was never home. I partied a lot, stayed out a lot, just anything I could do to, to not be still enough to think or feel right. Mm -hmm. And so that included getting into a relationship that I really, that wasn't a, it wasn't based on love. It was based on grief and, and in, and in that relationship ending up getting pregnant. And so it focused me. It was the thing like I was I was going at like a hundred miles per hour in a really negative or really bad direction. And motherhood was the thing that focused and steadied me because I had something to now think about outside of myself. So it really it really was an intervention. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't know what my therapist, my therapist would say <laughs> about me seeing it that way. Um, but it was, it, 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 and I know it's probably been said, but it did, it did feel like the thing that saved me, the thing that people thought was going to ruin my life mm-hmm. was actually, was actually the thing that saved it. And to this day, you know, that child, he's, he's my greatest accomplishment. Mm-hmm. He is my group. He, he is, he continues to be my greatest accomplishment. And now with my bonus children, you know, I just get to, they're, they're a lot younger. So I just get to kind of continue to share the parenting nuggets and wisdom as being a part of the village who's raising them. So Mm -hmm. I love that. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, you know, because you became a mom at a young age and in the church environment, you felt silenced from Mm -hmm. the shame. So I have a a two-part question. So like, how were you able to find your voice? And then what made you decide to get into ministry after that experience? While it was a very silencing experience, there was still, I I experienced a lot of love from my, from my church family. Right. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a, a, a segment of people who was like, we are just going to love on this little girl and help her with whatever she needed. And, you know, for everyone else who kind of had an issue, I was young, but I was feisty. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, like I wasn't, I've never been the kind to take, to take slack from nobody. Right. And so mm-hmm. I remember I grew up having to sit in the, in the very front. That was my mom's rule. You don't mm-hmm. sit in the back. 
you sit in the front, right? Till this day, even if I go to a church I don't know, I try to find the closest seat to the front, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But as I started to get bigger and I'm kind of waddling my way down, I remember one of the leaders said to me that I was making people feel uncomfortable oh, wow. and that, and then like kind of like, how dare I just kind of parade my belly around and that I needed to sit at the back, Wow, which was was also a tradition in, in many Black Pentecostal churches back then, right? You make a miss up, you sit in the back until they feel like you've earned your place in the kingdom again, right? You know, I was 18 and I said to them, I said, listen, I have always sat and worshiped at the front. Nothing has changed, right? I said, mm-hmm. I, I made a mistake, but I have not fallen out of love in relationship with Jesus Christ. I said, mm-hmm. if you put me in the back, I said, I promise you, I will walk past the back seat and out the door and you mm-hmm. will never see me again. So you decide. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I said, Am I sitting in the front today? Are you walking me to the back? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And um, and I sat in the front and I continued to sit in the front, you know. Um, but there was a commu- there was a segment of people who really they loved on me, they supported me. Um, they never shared it at the time, but now as an adult looking back, I'm 99.9% sure that those were women who were also single moms, but no one knew their story. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was their their opportunity to reach across and give what they didn't have. Mm-hmm. And and so I found love and community even within the circle of shame. And how how did I find how did I find my voice? I, I describe it I, I don't know if I can say I found it, but I describe it this way. I always say life places a demand on purpose. Mm-hmm. And at and at some point it's it's like a it's like a boiling pot you it just cannot be it can only be contained for so long mm-hmm. right we're we're all familiar with the the analogy of how pressure produces diamonds but mm-hmm. there's another one there's another adage that says pressure busts pipes right yep. and so like purpose is purpose contained and constrained is kind of like that and that's what happened like over time, the bubbling up, I, it, it just could not be contained. And it started seeping out in how I showed up in life. It started seeping out in conversations. I would say God even pulled it out that even when I chose to be silent, he had people who wouldn't allow me to be silent, mm-hmm. who, would ask, who would ask for my voice, who would ask for my gifts. And so it was only a matter of time. Life just kept placing a demand on what was in me. And at some point I just had to let it, I had to let it flow out. I had to let it flow out. Wow. <laughs> you know, there's, uh, I'm, I was thinking about what, what you said to the lady in church and I'm like, okay, so you and I have quite a few things in common outside of being coaches and leaders and feisty <laughs> women. <laughs> <laughs> We're also both introverts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, I would love to know, like, what advice you would give to the women that are listening that are also introverts, because I know that, you know, I, I get a lot of messages in my DMs from women that are like outside of me verbalizing that I'm an introvert. You know, they wouldn't know that just by what they see online or what I do. So they love the fact that, you know, I'm honest about my personality and my struggles sometimes of you know, being in leadership roles. So I would love to know what advice you can give to the introverted women who are listening right now, because I know there are many who are holding themselves back and I'm going to say using that as an excuse. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I, I would say, you know, one of the biggest things I've had to learn is one, I think introverts are perceived as not being personable, right? But mm-hmm. there's a difference, there's a difference between being a people person and being personable, right? right. Um, and so I, I had to learn that you could still very much have a deep sense of calling to speak and share and serve people, um, even, even when you feel drained by being around people, right? Because, mm-hmm. and so I think that for, for introverts, I would say just start to create a lifestyle because you and I both know that introversion speaks more to where we get our energy from, right? Yep. And yep. so I've, I've had to build a very fierce, lifestyle around how I energize. So for example, when I speak on like on a Sunday, let's say everything shuts down on a Monday (laughs) and I don't, and I'm unapologetic about that. I don't feel guilty or bad about that. It's what I need. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that you don't have, don't confuse the, the natural, maybe outspokenness of the extrovert as a, as a confirmation that yes, that person seems to naturally just think and speak out loud. So that's what they're called to do. And, and if I don't feel that, then I'm not called to do that. Again, per- life places a demand on your purpose. I could be the most quiet person. You can be the most quiet person in the room. But guess what? You put a mic in my hand, something very different happens. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I would say, yeah, don't, descri- don't discount Right. Um, the fact that you're you think inwardly and, and you don't you don't talk a lot. Introverts have a lot to say. We just we like to be very intentional about when and how we speak and how we have impact. So I would say start to reframe how you see yourself. You don't have to be that loud life of the party to mm-hmm. have something to to have something to say. Absolutely. I, I love all of that advice. Um, there was a book that I read last year that shifted my perspective on being an introvert. Quiet? Is that mm-hmm. quiet? Yeah, it's called Quiet. I can't remember the subtitle, but it's like something along the lines of like, you know, how an introvert survives in a world of extroverts or something like that. Um, but it totally shifted my perspective on being an introvert. And I'm going to say highlighted the strengths of introversion and how society has conditioned us to to look at it as a weakness. And for anyone who is listening who, you know, doesn't know what an introvert is, um, it's not just someone who is shy, but um, some general qualities of an introvert, you know, someone who needs quiet to concentrate. We are more reflective. We like to go inward rather than outward. Some would say we're more self-aware because of that. You know, we, we feel comfortable being alone. Um, we need alone time to recharge rather than, you know, extroverts who charge by being around people. Like you said, you know, if you are speaking on a stage or at church on Sunday, you know, Monday you have to take off. I'm very much the same. If I have to speak in an event, I'm exhausted the next day. Like I've depleted all of my energy. I feel completely um, tired (laughs) after that. And a lot of introverts prefer to write things rather than to talk. So, you know, speaking of you talking on stages, you're also an author. So I would love to know, like, what inspired you to write your first book? So I was going through a difficult time and, you know, I was like praying and I was like, oh, boohooing to God. And, you know, he was just like, listen, 
So again, part of, I think, the part of being sassy and, and a very di- direct communicator also means that that's how God communicates with me, right? Mm-hmm. So he was just, he was just kind of like, look, why are you coming to me again, like about this? Like we've been here, we have done this already. We have done this before. You have been in these places of despair where you've cried out to me. I've given you instructions or some word of life or wisdom, and you've been able to pull yourself out of the pit and carry on. Why are you not writing this down? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, Oh dang. Okay. So, um, yeah, he was just like, start writing it down. And so now like with my clients, I, I always say to them, write clarity when you get clarity. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it started out as a personal exercise of, you know, writing down, you know, you, you, you listen to a podcast like this, or you walk, you listen to a sermon or you watch something on YouTube and you're like, you get so much clarity and you're like, Oh yes, that's so good. Why aren't we writing that down? Right. Yeah. And um, so I started writing it down and those life lessons and wisdom and words became my first book. Wow. So for the women who are listening, I am going to repeat that. She said, write clarity when you get clarity. You know, a, a tip that I add to that, I always keep notepads around. I've got sticky notes and notepads everywhere because I need to write things down or I'll forget. <laughs> uh, so that is definitely um, a great lesson right there. So I would I would love to know with everything that you do, like what inspires you the most about what you do? Transformation. So I have this weird thing where I'm not a fan of the word motivation or motive. Like when when people say, "Oh my gosh, like you inspired me or that motivated me," I don't I don't feel full when mm-hmm. I hear that. Mm-hmm. When some when someone says, you know, whether I spoke or they read something I wrote or they took one of my courses. Um, and then they, they learned how to actually implement and take action, like action. Like even now I'm saying it, I know you can't see me, but my body posture shot up, like (laughs) my eyes, like my pupils are dilated, like, like Mm -hmm. action when when I, and it doesn't have to be big. I'm not talking about, I worked with someone and then they, they, they launched a business. I mean, anything like any, any movement from point A to point um, a point five. That's just life giving for me. That is absolutely life giving. Yes, I totally relate. Like I, I always say, like inspiration is great, but application is where it's at. Yeah, because that's where you're going to get the transformation. That's where you're going to get the results. Absolutely. Okay, so before we go to the final segment of the show, I want you to tell people where they can stay connected with you online to learn more about you and, and from you. Absolutely. So you can visit my website www.nicoleo make sure that letter o is in there salmon spelled just like the fish.com so nicolosalmon.com um i i live you can find me i live on instagram <laughs> <laughs> i like i live on instagram and then i visit my summer homes being facebook and twitter and some of these other spaces but if you plug nicole o salmon into just about any social media application, you can find me there. So Nicole Salmon on Instagram and everywhere else socials are found. Awesome. So I'll definitely have your direct link so they can connect with you and they won't have to search too far. For the final segment of the show, I call it a walk in her wisdom. I once upon a time looked at it as a rapid fire, but it's not so rapid because I like to ask people to unpack sometimes. So I don't like rules. <laughs> but um, Let's try to keep your responses to either one sentence or one word. 
and I may ask you to unpack, like I said. (laughs) Okay. All right, here we go. What keeps you up at night? I'm going to need a second for that one. (laughs) What What keeps me up at night? So I'm not a I'm not an up at night person, but I understand that the the sentiment of the question. I think if mm-hmm. if something if something is going to keep me up, it's I would say like breakthrough, mm-hmm. helping people break through. If if I'm aware of something in my life or someone else's, or something is like they're stuck and it's binding them to something that is costing them destiny, that keeps mm-hmm. me up. At that keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. When and where are you the happiest? When I'm by myself. <laughs> Introverts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received is you are not responsible for the whole. You are one small pit stop in people's journey to their, to their wellness. Okay, what's the worst advice you've ever received? I can't think of one specific advice, but I would say anything that includes any version of retaliation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when someone's kind of like, you know, go go tell them, go check them, clap back. Any any version of clapping back in retaliation out of emotions mm-hmm. would be the worst advice. What new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your life in the last five years? The new ha- so my newest habit is deep breathing. I practice deep breathing and mindfulness several times throughout the day. My watch reminds me that it's time to take a breath. And mm-hmm. when it when it does, I realize there are so many moments where I'm actually not breathing and that my body is tense. Mm-hmm. And so it has allowed me to not only relax but almost like come back to myself, come back into myself and be aware and present. Um, so deep breathing this this last year has really tr- transformed my my wellness. I love that. I'm a strong believer in meditation and breath work. Okay, last but not least, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? It would say, where you are is not who you are. Mm. Where you are is not who you are. And the reason why is because a purpose coach, one of the, one of the fundamentals that I teach around purpose is that purpose is not a destination. It's a lifestyle. It's not a place you get to. It's a place you live from. And oftentimes we get stuck and we define ourselves by what's happening around us. And, mm-hmm. and that's, and that's not just about bad things. It's about good things too. If we hang our identity on our accomplishments, that's a dangerous place to be. If mm-hmm. we define our identity by our failures, that's also a very dangerous place to be. And mm-hmm. so I, I think one of the most profound uh, coaching pillars that I've been passing on to, to my clients and that I, I try to practice and live out daily is reminding myself that, that where I am is not the same thing as who I am. Right. You've given us like so many quotables today, Nicole. Like uh, you started with like purpose leaves us breadcrumbs. You know, you gave us right clarity when you get clarity and you're leaving us with where you are is not who you are. I love every single one of those. (laughs) I just want to thank you, Nicole, for taking the time to join us, for sharing your story with us and being so transparent 
and giving us so many gems, you know, within your story and your expertise. Thank you so, so much. You're welcome, McKinney. Thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And to all of you legacy leavers out there, until next time, subscribe on all platforms. Don't forget to rate the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. I'm going to challenge you today if you can think of three women that would receive value from hearing Nicole's story and, you know, just learning from her gems and expertise, please share it with them. Feel free to screenshot this week's episode and you can tag us on Instagram. You can tag Nicole at Nicole O. Salmon. You can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith and continue to walk in greatness in your stilettos in a manner worthy of your calling.